Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Hello and welcome to Clash of the Titles, the podcast that sees two movies with something in common go head-to-head to see which one does it better. And welcome to part two of this week's Clash. So on Monday, we went back to 1986 to see how one man and a massive knife became the face of Australia for three decades in Crocodile Dundee. Today, we're watching one of the biggest stars from the very same decade show you what he can do with pretty much 100% creative control in a movie. From 1988, it's an Eddie Murphy production, except it's not coming to America. Why? Why can't I find my own wife? We've gone to a great deal of trouble to select for you a very fine wife. I want a woman that's going to arouse my intellect as well as my loins. Where will you find such a woman? In America. So he traveled across the sea to the land of opportunity, which is where the fairy tale ends and our story begins. We'll have a winner at the end of the show, but which film will it be? Let's find out. It's Clash of the Titles. Release the Kraken! Hello, Clash Potters. I know we've never talked about this. I always assumed you had sex with your bathers. I know I do. I'm Alex Zane. I'm Vicky Crompton. I'm Chris Tilly. Uh, very quickly, if you haven't subscribed to us already, if you would be kind enough to do that, that would be great. Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods, it is massively appreciated by the three of us. And if you're able to give us a little rating or review, that is 
so great. I would love you to do that, as I'm sure we all would. Also, follow us on Twitter at ClashPod and on Instagram at ClashPod. Shio, part two of Crocodile Dundee versus Coming to America. Victorious choices this week. V, remind us why. Uh, let's hear it for New York. Concrete jungle where dreams are made of knives and knockoff fast food restaurants. New York. <laughs> yeah, that's... Lovely. Lovely. Uh, I, I like the version with um, Alicia Keys and Jay-Z. Not just the Alicia Keys one. I, I like me a bit of Jay-Z on anything. You could put him on anything. He's a, a very talented man. On toast. Oh, oof, I'd love me some uh, some of the uh, the Jay-Z and my, my little Jay-Z spread. Get him out of a jar every morning. <laughs> spread him over my crumpets. Good. Monday, I took you down under. And today, Chris is taking you to Zamunda. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Oh, you don't know how pleased with myself I was when I came up with that. Uh, Chris, take us on a journey. I mean, that was very good, but what was less good is you forgot to cue me in to do my uh, podcast review, which I've started to do at the beginning of the second episode oh, of every week. So did, I have I? a review. It's from Matty T London. And his review is, funny wankers, I'm all in. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like it because it's short, it's sharp, it's to the point. More of that, please. <laughs> Get that on a fucking T-shirt. That's all I can say. There's our merchandising. Funny wankers on the front. I'm all in I on the back. It. Little self-congratulatory, but I believe it. I, I, I truly do. Right, coming to America. Let me, let me, let, let, I, I failed to queue you up for the review. Let me at least do this bit. Chris, take us on a journey. It's another beautiful day in Zamunda, but not for Prince Akeem, who is unhappy with the arranged marriage that's being forced on him. So travels to New York incognito and lives like a poor person in order to find true love. Along the way, he gets a job at a burger joint called McDowell's, a McDonald's ripoff that satirises such copycat establishments. Which is ironic as coming to America is a ripoff itself. The idea for the movie being stolen from a writer who successfully sued Paramount in a landmark court case that changed the way Hollywood functions which is a much more interesting story and one I'm about to tell you about. <laughs> Thanks. That was, uh, that was nice. So, less about the plot this week and more about the history of the film, but I, I, I'm down with that, Chris. I like So, uh, what are your memories of watching this? Let's start with you, Alex. I have seen it. I remember watching it at some point in the 90s, I want to say. I remember thinking the McDowell's gag was very funny. That is all. Vicky? <laughs> <laughs> I think I've seen I think I saw it on the telly. Like, but I've only seen it once and not since I was very little. Fair enough. Uh, me, For me, it was, I mean, Eddie Murphy films were quite exciting in the 80s. They felt dangerous to me when I was a kid because they had swearing and they had boobs and they had jokes I didn't quite understand. So it was always exciting when a new one came out. Um, and so, yeah, my memories of just being super excited to see a new Eddie Murphy film and finding it quite funny. But as I say, not potentially not getting all the jokes in this film, a bit like Crocodile Dundee. I was very confused throughout the 80s. I didn't really get anything. 
<laughs> um, so as I said, the background to this movie is as interesting as the movie itself, if not more. And it meant I had to do a lot of research this week, more than usual. I've got a headache, to be honest, from all the reading of of um, lengthy articles and even court transcripts I, I, I've yeah. done this week. But I I absolutely love the fact you've done this because I, I did a little bit and then I was like, I just, there's, yeah, there's so let much. let me handle it. But you, you, you have to go in, I'm, I'm sure you will, but the Landis Murphy, if you've got some of those interview <laughs> quotes, what the, what the fucking fuck? It's unbelievable. You just can't imagine a movie star talking about a director like that, not even if they were the biggest movie star on the planet. It is. These are such... 80s quotes that you're like he said he said fucking what <laughs> i'm getting to that i'm getting to that but it's a tale of two court cases this story and i'm starting with the first court case so this is i've got some quotes from the la times the washington post and as i said some court transcripts as well because this is all about who wrote coming to america because in march 1982 pulitzer prize winning columnist art butchwald wrote an eight-page movie Call, an eight-page movie idea called It's a Cruel, Cruel World. And here's the, here's the synopsis. A rich, despotic African ruler comes to America on a state visit. While in the US, he is overthrown and left destitute. After his entourage deserts him, he ends up in Washington, D.C. in a ghetto, is stripped of his clothes and eventually obtains employment as a waiter. He then falls in love with and marries a young woman from the ghetto. After they get married, he becomes the emperor of the ghetto and they live happily ever after. So that was his synopsis written over eight pages. Um, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who happened to have a deal with Eddie Murphy at the time, purchased the premise at Paramount. Uh, Bookwald was promised a fee and percentage of the net profit if they produced a film based upon his story. And net profit and based upon were key terms in his contract. Mm. Uh, Katzenberg retitled it King for a Day and spent half a million dollars on two scripts uh, rewriting that story, but the project never came to fruition. King for a day then moved to Warner Brothers, but they lost interest when Paramount announced the making of a film called Coming to America. And what had happened there is Paramount had paid Eddie Murphy $400,000 for a two-page outline called The Quest. (gasps) Wow. uh, And then turned that into Coming to America and gave him a story by credit. Now, it was pretty obvious what had happened here. um, And Bookworld understandably took them to court and won. The judge ruled that Bookwald's outline had provided enough basis for coming to America to justify a breach of contract suit. And that ruling was based on each story involving a wealthy, pampered and well-educated young member of African royalty, both depicting their hero experiencing the realities of ghetto life. And in both films, the hero took a menial job and married a young American woman. And my favourite, because of how specific it is, in both versions, the hero uses a mop to foil a robbery. (laughs) (laughs) So they weren't even trying to cover their tracks at that point by taking that story element. But then it got to the issue of of compensation. So um, it was his contractual share of net profits, which Eddie Murphy during the trial called monkey points, because Mm. Paramount said there were no net profits on this film. Uh, Do you guys know what net profits are when it comes to movies? Yeah, so it's your gross less the costs of everything. But that's sometimes it's a contentious point because people chuck the marketing costs in there as well. So it's not just necessarily the gross less what it costs to produce the film, um, but you get like ancillary costs. So you can, I shouldn't say creatively account, you can account 
your gross profit and your net can be very small or look very small or it just is very small but it's um in in when you're negotiating a contract you would love to get gross but it's very difficult to get yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. So all these it's 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 what the movie made after all these fees are taken off it. So basically after the studio, after the theater owners and after Eddie Murphy have taken all their money, whatever's left, you might be able to have. And a percentage all, but- of though, that's the thing. Whatever's left, you get a percentage of, which is never going to be like you don't get it's not, you know, 100% of that or anything. It's a really small percentage. Well, yeah, the ruling was that Bookworld received 1.5% of the net profits <laughs> and his producer yeah. received 17.5%. Right. But in spite of the film off off like a you know thirty five million budget making over three hundred million worldwide, uh, how they put it in these files, it said in spite of the film earning sixteen million in gross revenues, Paramount claimed it had yet to show a net profit and that the film was actually running an eighteen million dollar <laughs> deficit. Uh, so after a seven year legal battle, Bookwald prevailed, uh, although the damage award that he received was considerably less than he had sought and even less that he had to pay in legal fees so it was kind of a sad end to the story for him yeah uh but it did change the way some things work in hollywood so soon after the writers guild of america formed a committee to examine issues of credit because there was little doubt that bookward sort of should have received some kind of credit on this certainly more than eddie murphy did and it also changed the way um profit participation deals are structured As for Murphy's thoughts on the whole grubby affair, he stated that The Prince and the Pauper is in public domain. And he said it was autobiographical anyway, as it was about the difficulties he had being rich and famous and finding a woman to like him for who he was. Oh, (laughs) okay. (laughs) So that is the uh, writing case. The other case involved the director and star or a previous case in one of their lives. So, uh, John Landis had directed Eddie Murphy in Trading Places a few years before coming to America. Um, and he's quoted in Wild and Crazy Guys, the book by uh, Nick Desemlian, which I often um, talk about on this show. It's a really good book. Uh, he says, Eddie was a monster movie star now, and he was different. He had lost that sparkle. He could summon it forth and still be incredibly creative and brilliant, but he was dark on that movie. I don't know what his issues were. Should we talk about what his issues were? Because he talked about them extensively to Rolling Stone in 1989 and Playboy in 1990. <laughs> um, and he was uh, definitely, uh, his ego was out of control, I would say, at this time of his career. Um, his nickname was Money. <laughs> he was making a series of albums that no one wanted to buy. He's living in his version of Graceland, which was called Bubble Hill. And he was paying an entourage of people with names like Roughhouse, Ray Ray and Fruity to hang out with him. So uh, I only mention that because they come up in this story. But this is the first quote from Eddie Murphy as to what his issues were. He said, John always resented that I hadn't gone to his Twilight Zone trial. But if you're directing a movie and two kids get their heads chopped off at fucking 12 o'clock at night, then there ain't supposed to be kids working. And you said action, then you have some sort of responsibility. So my principals wouldn't let me go down there and sit in court. Wow. So that's the uh, the incident on the Twilight Zone set that we've previously talked about on this podcast where Vic Morrow and two children uh, were killed. I should add that Landis was tried and co- acquitted on charges of manslaughter in a nine-month trial, but the victims' families um, did collect millions of dollars from several civil lawsuits after that. 
So Murphy was going to direct Coming to America, but he said he felt um, sorry for Landis. He said he'd just done three fucked up pictures in a row and his career was hanging by a thread after the trial. I figured that guy was nice to me, so I'd give him a shot. I'm a popular actor in this town and to have a guy who was as fucked as he was get a job with me gave him some renewed credibility. But according to Murphy, Landis kept telling him to go fuck himself on the film set. (laughs) (laughs) And he also uh, allegedly advised the leading lady not to sleep with Murphy. Murphy says, even if I was trying to get the pussy, for him to try to stop me from getting it because he was directing the movie, he's got a lot of nerve. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, just give me a minute. Because it doesn't belong to her in any way. It's for John Landis to offer or for Eddie Murphy to take. It was never even about the pussy. No, sorry, you did say that. So uh, Murphy says that they were arguing about money uh, one day and he playfully grabbed Landis around the neck. Uh, Then Landis Landis, uh, playfully grabbed his balls. And this is how it went down. Murphy says, I cut his wind off. He fell down, his face turned red, his eyes watered up like a bitch and he ran off the set. Fucking punk. (laughs) Um, They continued to argue in his trailer. And Murphy says, if he had fucked up again, I would have beat the shit out of him. (laughs) It worked. He was afraid of me. He'll probably never admit it, but the motherfucker was on his toes for the rest of the show and didn't fuck with me for the whole rest of the picture. Um, fun fact, after that Just, fight. Wow. <laughs> you like that, Alex? Just wow. <laughs> I mean, this is I've I read it, but like to hear it out loud, it's like what I've just can you imagine? Can you imagine someone walking off a movie and having had a bit of a, a to do with the director and going well, I've got an interview in me. Where's the first? Where's the first outlet I can tell this horrific story? <laughs> uh, fun fact: um, the only time Eddie Murphy's ever drunk in his life was after they had that fight. He went off with Arsenio Hall and got drunk and was very sick, and he's never drunk before or after that. Um, apologies for the swearing as well. I try not to swear too much on this show, but I've said a lot of f words, but not my words. The words of Eddie Murphy. He ends his story by saying, "I was going out of my way to help this guy, and he fucked me over." Now he's got a hit picture on his resume, a movie that made over $200 million, as opposed to him coming off a couple of fucked up movies, which is where I'd rather see him be right now. (laughs) Uh, He appeared on Arsenio Hall's talk show not long after, and Arsenio said, would you work work with Landis again? Murphy said, he has a better chance of working with Vic Morrow than he does with me. Whoa, that is unnecessary. (laughs) I know, I didn't read that one. Holy shit. That is unnecessary, but the postscript to that is four years later, John Landis directed him in Beverly Hills Cop 3. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you know, like, what upsets me about all this is that, that the only quote I could sort of find that John Landis had sort of publicly um, uttered like, after clearly, like, Eddie Murphy had gone to town on him. Uh, John Landis said, the guy in Trading Places was young and full of energy and curious and funny and fresh and great. The guy in Coming to America was the pig of the world. <laughs> the pig of the world. <laughs> <laughs> but I still think he's wonderful in the movie, is what John Landis said after the film, which is a, a very different uh, a very different line uh, to what Eddie Murphy said. So uh, those are my Eddie Murphy quotes from that those two interviews. There's one other one I've got. It's totally irrelevant, but I liked it. In that in that Playboy interview, he also talks about how much Francis Ford Coppola, Al Pacino, and Mario Puzo loved his pitch for Godfather 3 that would have starred him and Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> he said the only reason it didn't get made was because it was too expensive. I think I think the ego is slightly out of control at this point. Um, in terms of the film itself, uh, the only other thing I've got to say um, about the background is it had one bad preview. And so they then pulled all screenings for press. So no one saw this film uh, before it came out because they were expecting it to get such terrible reviews. Which is interesting in yeah. hindsight. So should we talk about the movie? Okay, let's do it. Um, Kickoff in Zamunda and the Paramount logo transforms into Africa as, as that beautiful music plays. Did you like that, Alex? <laughs> I, I love any movie that messes with the logo. Yes, it's um, great. And we're in uh, the palace in the kingdom of Zamunda. Um, I think this is a strong start, but I feel like when you're writing scripts, I don't know if you guys agree with this, that the opening pages are the pages you rewrite the most. Because they're Ooh. at the beginning, and I you sort of go over them over again. I felt like that's what's happened here, where they've they've written this opening scene over and over again that the gag ratio is sky high in the opening five yeah. minutes. Yeah. One of the funniest jokes is the fact that it says on screen the titles come up and it goes uh, an Eddie Murphy production. Um, now, when a movie is a production of someone, that person tends to be one of the producers. It's kind of a title reserved for the producers of a film. Eddie Murphy is not a producer. <laughs> on this movie, and yet he is listed as Eddie, an Eddie Murphy production. <laughs> I think that gives you an idea of just just how out of control that ego is at this point. So um, he's playing Prince Akeem, and a live, a live orchestra wakes him. Uh, beautiful women wish him a good morning. Rose petals are strewn in his path. He has his ass wiped. Um, a topless woman sponges his back and cleans the royal penis, um, mm. which was my favourite joke when I was uh, 10 years old when mm-hmm. this film came out. I thought that was yeah, exceptionally I mean, funny. I- no, it's not. Um, the trouble is, <laughs> the trouble is, the orchestra alarm clock and the long dining table, those visual gags are really good because they're really warm and they're really funny. But then you get your penis is clean. It's like, oh, yuck. Like, it, it's just, that's there's nothing wrong with that joke. But in after a sweet joke about an orchestra alarm clock, it sort of comes out of nowhere. Excuse the pun. Yeah, it's because it's because he uh, he seems like a man child initially. Like the first few scenes are like a man child having to be woken up gently by yeah. an orchestra, and like and he sort of wakes up so nicely, just lying there in absolute peace, and just opens his eyes. And you're right, it quickly goes from family comedy to R-rated. Hey, some boobs and a penis being cleaned under the water. Mm. Although what softens it slightly is him being completely unreactive yes. to it. Like that sort of, that that. That takes the edge of it because it is just like, it's just normal. It's only when James Earl Jones starts talking about fucking his babies yeah. that oh, you're like, now, now, now you've taken a sort of weirdly innocent, but still a bit like, a bit like blue joke and made it, made it sick, made it, ah, oh, we're taking advantage of these women because we're, we're the royalty here. I thought you fucked your bathers as well, son. Exactly. Uh, so we meet the parents, as you said, uh, the king and queen. Um, these actors, James Earl Jones and Madge Sinclair, they played another couple in a mega successful film. Bonus quiz question. Do you know what that film is? Was she Gen- uh, Emperor Palpatine? No. <laughs> Nearly as big Sorry. as that, though. Nearly as big as that. <laughs> um, isn't he in The Lion King? Yeah, they are a, the yeah. Mom, they're Simba's parents in The Lion King. Yes, of course. Nice one, Vicky. Lovely. Um, he's got a lot of money, this king, King Jaffe Joffa, hasn't he? I- I'm not sure what business he's in, but I feel like something shady's <laughs> going on, and I wouldn't like to think what's happening outside his palace. 
Um, but it's the 21st birthday of Prince Akeem and he's about to meet his wife-to-be. But he's immediately concerned about um, an arranged marriage because he wants a woman to love him for who he is. But he also says he wants a woman with an opinion, to which I'd say try and doing a podcast with one of those, Prince Akeem. <laughs> it ain't as fun as it sounds. <laughs> I know, there is a difficulty with me. It is the law of diminishing returns. I'm fun for a bit, then I'm just annoying. And you're stuck with me now. <laughs> <laughs> we meet his best or friend, not. Semi. Um, who has no problem with the arranged marriage. He has no problem with anything, really, Semi. But then there's sort of a, a cruel um, kind of humour that runs throughout this film. Some of it's sweet, some of it's sexual, and some of it's cruel. And it's all kind of mashed together. So they sort of, they the joke is they make him think he's marrying someone overweight mm. um, before uh, we get an African tribal dance. And you mentioned the choreography in... Um, in Crocodile Dundee, Alex, being choreographed by a famous uh, Aboriginal choreographer. Mm. Do you know who choreographs this dance sequence? Paula, uh, Michael Paula Jackson. Abdul. Paula Abdul. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Well done, Paula. It is. It's at 60. I wrote down the time because I was like 16 minutes in. Dance number is it's epic. It's a great. It's, it's great. And it's funny because it's like the joke being like there's, there's three reasons that I think it's not just a really great dance number. It's funny is because it's all done just to introduce his wife yeah. to be. It's like it's like to, for someone to walk into a room. This has to happen. And it's also Eddie and James Earl Jones, their reaction when they're just sort of standing there completely unmoved by it. And all the guests are just standing there just looking, just sort of watching. Like no one's sort of like, this is incredible. It's very stony face, like just normal around here. It's and you've got Omar as well as the, que- as, as the queen to be is walking towards the princess to be um, him. He's singing. And I'd never really listened to the lyrics that he's singing, but they made me laugh. <laughs> yeah, She's your queen to be, queen to be forever, a queen who will do whatever your highness desires, quench your royal fire, free from infection to use at your discretion. <laughs> um but then we meet the we meet the woman and she likes everything he likes and she'll obey him and then he's sort of a bit cruel to her really makes her bark like a dog a big dog and has a hopping like on a leg and making one a noise like a an orangutan uh, yeah, yeah i know but i like no, it's it. not funny it's, it's i i couldn't help it like i just think like this whole forget like you have to take yourself out of what is quite a cruel joke and just the idea like in any circumstance of sort of going i mean it the hopping on one leg it, it like it gets dark pretty quickly but initially the sort of like like a dog and she just like it's the joke is what sound she can make that actually convinces as a dog and it's like oh and they, a big dog oh <laughs> that's funny after that it goes off a cliff very quickly, but that initial difference between a small dog and a big dog is really good. But yeah, she's the, she is the real victim in this movie. Like, like you can, like she casts such a huge shadow over this movie because like, even, even at the end you were like, what about that poor yeah. woman? Is she still somewhere in Zamunda hopping and making a noise like an orangutan? Because that was the last thing she was told to do by a man. She has been brought up entirely mm to be with and then even at the end like this is where the movie really misses a trick at the end she doesn't get a payoff where she's married to another royal at the gathering or is happy with someone else like she just like her entire life to be his wife and then he says no and what is she doing what do you do after that i don't know 
because I've never I've never been in that position. But what 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 do you do? You haven't trained as a baker. You can't become a baker. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I I'm hoping that we, you're obviously doing this because coming to America, the sequel is out this week, and I'm hoping that maybe they revisit her story in the sequel. Although I did try and watch this earlier, I reached out to the production company and they would not send me a copy so i don't know what that says about the quality of the new film but i did new here back um i like, I like you see i love I your know, confidence it's, man. It's, it's, so and we're cool. not being it's we're so... not taking a piss that is amazing that you get that rejection <laughs> and you're like that is on them yeah. rather than it being like yeah. it's nothing to do with they're like who, who are you again <laughs> like you want to talk about it where <laughs> Clash of the clash of the what? <laughs> now what's what is this thing? What is this thing? It's like hello, we're making a podcast. Uh, obviously, it's like this is a you, hello, you, Chris. Is it? Hi, Chris. Uh, this is a, this is a it's a multi million uh, dollar production. Uh, it's been released through Amazon Prime. I'm sure you're aware of Amazon, one of the biggest corporations on the planet. But you'd like to be the only person to see it to review it on on the clash of the titles. It's going to be a no. Unbelievable. Unfucking believable. Uh, well, we are the fifth biggest movie podcast on Spotify. I'll have you know. Well, that's true. Yeah, that's as, as, should at, to as at December 2020. Did you not tell them? Um, I think, no, I think when they don't dish a film out to critics, I think it's terrible. There we go. Coming to America, the sequel is hey, awful. I, but, uh, yeah, uh, yeah the, I mean, it, it depends. I think if you liked coming to America, especially this early part, there's going to be a lot to like in coming to America because the trailer, uh, it, it seems like, you know, it seems like we're still in 1988, <laughs> genuinely. Better or worse. Um, so Prince Akeem uh, is still not happy with the situation. He speaks to the king and they agree that he has 40 days to sow his royal oats. Um, and so he's going to head off um, with Semi for what Semi is hoping will be 40 days of fornication. Uh, but Akeem's plan is to find a wife. Um, so he decides on America. It's Sorry, gone, Alex. Why? It was. I mean, do you think on the page, do you think when James Earl Jones was asked to be in this, and it's like you play you play the king of Zamunda, you play the Murphy's dad, did it, did it say in brackets, pervert? <laughs> Because, like, he just, like, every scene is, like, a, a, about having sex and how he should have sex with people, women. Just have have sex. Uh, fulfill your every erotic desire. It's just, like, Lady Murphy at that point is just going, I want to go see America. He's like, oh, for sex. <laughs> no, just, like, just going to go see America to fulfill your erotic desires. No, 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 no. Just a holiday. What the fuck is wrong with you? It's like, stop having sex with your bathers as well. They are employees. Uh, you are in a position of power. That's fucked up, dude. <laughs> so they uh, let fate decide. A coin takes them to New York. And to find a woman suitable for a king, they head to Queens. And we're going to take a break. But when we come back, we are going to America. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do 
not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This week at Sukarnov. On Clash of the Titles, things got a little awkward when Alex, Vicky and Chris discussed the Incredible Hulk going to the hairdressers. Have you never had a haircut? And gone, oh, that is not what I asked for. I can't remember what it's like to go to the hairdressers. <laughs> oh, God, sorry, sorry. That's triggering, sorry. That's on me. Bad move, yeah, bad move. Yeah, that is on you. Yeah. Absolutely, I didn't, I forgot... I forgot. Because we haven't seen you for such a yeah. long time. We forgot you've got no <laughs> I'm hair. I'm still bald. So. Yeah, it hasn't grown back <laughs> magically since we last spoke. And over on Football Ramble Presents, the On the Continent team have been keeping you across all the European knockouts, as well as a possible title race in League Earn as well. Icardi can be so frustrating because he can be just one of the most impressive finishers. But, you know, when he's not quite on it, he's kind of like the David Blaine of football. Like, he spends a lot of time in a box not doing anything. Find Clash of the Titles and Football Ramble Presents on your favourite podcast player and listen now. All that and a whole lot more at Sukarnov. And we're back. So uh, Semi and Akeem arrive in New York. No one can know that he's royalty. Um, he must appear no different to the average man, in spite of the fact he's wearing his royal robes and jewellery. But they soon uh, get rid of the money and material things, uh, largely by having it stolen. Uh, they claim to be students. And I feel like what's noticeable about the film at this point is that it's a very different Eddie Murphy to the one we're used to seeing on screen in 1988. He's genuine, he's yep. honest, he's sincere. Do you like this version of Eddie Murphy on screen? Vicky? 
Yeah. No. I, yeah, I, I do. I do. I do. Um, I do because it's you. You know, he can be funny, and it is so. It's good to see him be able to do like the sort of more serious side of it. The the issue for me is you could have had a bit of both. So he's really solemn, to be honest, like quite pole faced. And if he was as a so as a character, if Prince Akeem was pampered and was spoiled, but he's just a good dude, like all the way through, he's, he seems to be untouched by the money and he's a great bloke and he wants to find a wife who values him for himself so he doesn't have anything to learn he doesn't change at all so you could have had him be a bit goofier and a bit sillier at the start and then grow into the seriousness um rather than him just being super serious as as prince akeem all the way through and, and and play up to the idea that he's used to everything being exactly, on a plate. Yeah. It's like it started like the foot. It's really funny when they come through the airport because it's play. It's, it's playing that gag. It's playing the like he's so used to everything being on a plate he doesn't realize what he's doing. It's like we'll fit in like acres and acres of luggage being trailed behind him. And then the bit where he walks out into the street and goes halt <laughs> to the yeah. cab, and you're like, great. So he doesn't realize that's not how it works. That's gone immediately. That is the last time they play on yeah. that joke. After that, he's just like he just sort of fits in and throws money at situations. But there's you need some gags based around that sense of privilege because that would have been hilarious. Someone with a sense of privilege walking around New York, not understanding that it doesn't work like that. They don't also, play on that. I know I'm jumping ahead a bit, but just to, this is how you'd write this scene today plays exactly on what you've just said rather than on um, taking the piss out of women. So like with the queen and the, sorry, the princess at the start, that's meant to show that he's a great guy because he's like, yeah, but you, you just do what I tell you, but it is cruel to her. So it's, it's, it's mean, you know, you, there's a way of doing that. It's his privilege and his shortcomings that he can't see. She's a great deal or whatever. When you get to the unsuitable girl montage, you wouldn't write it like that today. It's of its time, but you just wouldn't do it with offensive stereotypes you would do it so that it's his shortcoming his his you know the start of his journey whatever makes him unsuitable he's too naive or he's got false expectations based on his privilege or he's arrogant or whatever and the comedy is all on him rather than it being on them because the way that they're portrayed just isn't he just sits through that montage like he's still a great guy um but you i don't think you'd write it like that today which is which is and it, that's you're absolutely right because like the whole no, it kind of is it's supposed to be a fish out of water comedy like that is what we've signed up for this guy doesn't understand how things work in new york because of his sense of privilege and it doesn't do that like it just just doesn't that's that's not what it is for the second half now well, not even the second half two-thirds yeah. of the movie i i, I just I, I just sort of like Weird women, him him meeting weird <laughs> yeah. women, um, and that that being weird, that is not fish out of water comedy. That is just sort of like, I mean, I guess it's sort of the idea. I don't know, like uh, he doesn't know which bars to go to, so that's those are the kind of women that you meet in bars in Queens, maybe. But it's sort of very, it's very, it's a grey area. Um, the clever thing he does though is realizing that he's he's playing the straight man in this movie. He gives himself a bunch of other characters to play. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But interestingly, that wasn't his idea. That's all Landis. Um, this is Murphy talking recently. He said the original idea didn't have multiple characters. Once John Landis got involved, he knew I was able to do the Yiddish accent. So he was like, that would be hysterical. He had worked with Rick Baker before, so he was like, Rick could make you look like an old Jewish man. That would be hysterical. <laughs> and that's how that stuff started. So we got the uh, the barbershop sequence, um, 
mighty shop where they're arguing about Sugar Ray Robinson versus Joe Lewis versus Muhammad Ali versus Mike Tyson versus Mocky Marciano while cutting Cuba Gooding Jr.'s hair. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, the other funny jokes over the course of the film in that barbershop, um, Frank Sinatra apparently told him that Joe Lewis was 137 years old. That made me laugh. <laughs> and he claims that Martin Luther King punched him in the chest once. <laughs> in the uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. was really upset because there was a scene where he says something inappropriate and um, I can't remember what he says. He said something and um, Eddie Murphy's uh, barber uh, shaves a chunk out of the back of his hair as a punishment, and he was like, "It's really funny," and it didn't make it into the, the the final cut of the film, which it seems amazing because that sounds like a, a funny visual gag. And, and clearly, they they left, I'd say, around ninety nine percent of what they shot in this fucking movie. <laughs> well, I think another similarity we didn't talk about between Crocodile Dundee and and this movie is that they're both written by sketch writers. And you can feel that in Crocodile Dundee and you can definitely feel it in Coming to America where it does feel at times less like a movie and more like an episode of Saturday Night Live. Well, what it feels like is uh, the best uh, Police Academy movie, <laughs> Police Academy 2, their first assignment, which is what the writers Did also they? wrote. No, it's the best Police Academy movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is the best Police Academy movie. Yeah, the, it's uh, Barry Blaustein, uh, Blaustein and David Sheffield uh, wrote uh, Police Academy 2, their first assignment. Which is, like you say, the best, and they wrote this. Excellent. Um, I think they went. I think they went on to write the nutty one did. of the nutty professor yeah, movies. They as did, well. and actually, one bad, of yeah. them made a really interesting documentary about wrestling called Beyond the Mat. But that is totally beside the point. Mm. Um, so they rent a room with a window facing a brick wall that had previously been rented to a blind man who was killed there alongside his dog. Um, dumb joke. <laughs> uh, I like that homeless people all around, all through Queens, are wearing their clothes for the rest of the movie. <laughs> That's just a funny background joke. Um, and we get the Soul Glow advert on TV, uh, written by one Nile Rogers. Yeah. <laughs> it's brilliant. Uh, very funny. Uh, utilised a couple of times in this film. I think they should go the whole hog and just keep playing that advert. Um, <laughs> so, yes, as you said, they hit the bars of Queens um, to find a woman. But apparently every girl in New York has a severe emotional problem is how... Uh, I think Semi puts it. So, as you said, this... One of the best delivered lines, though, is, uh, I've got a secret. I worship the devil. <laughs> like that. That was funny. Yep, you got the devil-worshipping woman, the angry drunk woman, the woman who wants to be MW, the woman with the husband on death row. <laughs> the weird thing to me is that there's two sets of twins. That seems weird to repeat that. Yeah, agreed. Didn't understand. What a be Sigger. Yeah, and Arsenio Hall in drag, as we mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, apparently, I think the plot of the sequel uh, comes about from this night, where I think at the end of this night, supposedly he sleeps with one of the women, and that's how come he has a child, which the second film is all about. Uh, they head to the the Black Awareness Rally and watch the Bliss the Miss Black Awareness pageant, <laughs> which is quite a funny joke. Um, Arsenio Hall is playing preacher Reverend Brown. And apparently that name, Reverend Brown, the, the use of Brown came from John Landis, kept calling Arsenio Hall Arsenio Brown. I don't know if that's problematic or not, or just um, <laughs> <laughs> a bit odd. Um, 
So, and also we meet Randy Watson, played by Eddie Murphy and his band, uh, <laughs> Sexual Chocolate. Have I got any no. Sexual Chocolate fans in no, the house? Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he is, that Randy Watson is the best character in this movie. He's he's just so beautifully observed. Yeah. It's so subtle, uh, such subtle humour, but he is Who are great. you seeing in, in Randy Watson? Is there anyone specific you're seeing him kind of spoofing there? Uh, not me. No, I just, no. I think there's a bit of Prince, a bit of Rick James, and a, a bit of James Brown is what I've put down. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, very funny, singing the greatest love of all. Um, he also meets the McDowell family, um, who run McDowell's, which, um, as I said in the intro, uh, he's in a misunderstanding with the McDonald's people. It's a, it's a fast food uh, restaurant that... Seems similar to McDonald's. Um, any favourite similarities that you spotted in this film? Yeah, the Golden Arcs. <laughs> that's, the best, that's the best joke. You see, you see, they have the Golden Archers, and I have the Golden Arcs. That's I remember so that line from McDonald's watching it in the nineties. To be in this film, or is it just a joke that they were allowed to do? Or why is it like I thought it was a bit done to death? Um, it's it's funny once, and then it's not funny anymore. So then I assumed McDonald's had paid for it, which is why it's in it so much. Is that true? I believe they okayed it rather than actually paying for it. But they didn't actually contribute any money. No, because it's 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 not an advert for McDonald's, is it? It's um, it's almost taking the piss. (laughs) No. they did. Uh, McDonald's McDonald's head office okayed it, like Chris says. But uh, apparently what they didn't do was uh, tell the manager of the nearest McDonald's <laughs> to the film set that they turned into McDowell's. And he came down there with a photographer and started taking photographs of it uh, when they built the sets for the movie. And he was shouting at people going, uh, you guys are going to get so fucked over in court. We're going to see you in court. You think you can do this? You can't with McDonald's. <laughs> That's brilliant. I just, I think it's just a bit like you can imagine when you're watching a fish out of water situational comedy, your brain is like, oh, my God, like this guy could end up anywhere. And like he's come from a country in Africa and he's landed in Queens and he's going to become and it's like, oh, what's he going to be? And he could be anything. And then you're like, oh, he's just going to work in a McDonald's. And there isn't anything that's like super New York about it. Or I know it's really silly, but what you know, he could work at the Statue of Liberty or he could play baseball or whatever. Inserts like city stereotype there. But then once he's hemmed in by the McDowell's restaurant, and that's where the comedy's going to happen, and the set pieces, even though there aren't that many set pieces, you have to think that's really funny to be like, wow, I'm so on board with this restaurant setup. Otherwise, it's like, oh, could have gone anywhere, ended up there. Uh, yeah, I was going to actually make the quiz about these fake uh, fast food joints, um, but they're quite visual, the joke, so it wouldn't really work. But I did end up going down a rabbit hole um, researching them. They're a big business in Iran where McDonald's is McDonald's. And mm. Pizza Hut is Pizza Hat, which I like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was um, there was one in in Hare Hills in Leeds when I was a kid growing up, um, which was McDonald's Kebabs, mm. which I thought was great, very clever. Uh, McDonald's um, made them change it though; like they were li- literally McDonald's were really, really like on it with shit like this, and they were like, absolutely. Not. In fairness, he did have the golden arches as the M, and it was red, <laughs> and the writing was white, and it looked like McDonald's kebabs. If you didn't, if you were going press pretty fast, but yeah, they had to change it. You guys, you guys are from the north though. When you were growing up, did you ever see the Jason Donovan? <laughs> 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 That's real. 
Oh, I wish I had. <laughs> and in Germany, uh, Dunkin' Donuts, they got Donkey Donuts, but the same. The well, that same horrible. Colors. I know, it does, <laughs> doesn't it? Yeah. That doesn't sound like you want to eat there. No. Um, but back to the film. So um, also we meet Daryl Jenks in uh, this bit of the movie, played by Eric LaSalle of ER fame. God. I love him. Mm. I do yeah. love him. We first see him not giving money in the church, but uh, he gets a proper intro when the Soul Glow music is playing and he pulls <laughs> into a car park in his sports car and sprays his hair and smiles. <laughs> um, it turns out he works at Soul Glow and he's heir to the Soul Glow uh, money, but he is a brilliant character. I don't think we see enough of Daryl Jenks in this film. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Like, you know... And at least, you know, he's set up as a dick right from the start, uh, whereas Richard in Crocodile Dundee is a nice guy who then conveniently becomes a dickhead later on. So he's, you know, at least he sticks to his guns. And yet, even towards the end, somehow, like, he manages to, like, you know, get a little bit of sympathy out of that character when, you know... Um, uh, when uh, 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 John Amos is slamming the door in his face repeatedly and he just keeps standing there ringing the doorbell with his flowers. You're like, oh, yeah, I agree. Oh, Daryl. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite impressive that he manages to get that out of a character that is fundamentally a massive dick. It's economical storytelling, though, isn't it, with his intro where he just doesn't give any money in the church. That's it. You yeah. know exactly who that guy is. And then he doubles yeah. down by mm. making Lisa McDowell, who becomes the love interest, uh, think that he has given the money. As he says, you know yeah. me, mm. anything for the kids. <laughs> he, <laughs> he gets a laugh, but, you know, he's the villain. So which confuses me now because, you know, there's a lot of, about money in this film. And then um, Prince Akeem finds out or thinks that Lisa wants expensive things, so sends her really expensive earrings, which feels like it yeah. contradicts his whole reason for it being there. It doesn't make any sense. And the whole yeah. premise it's of meant the film. To be like, yeah, it's supposed to be a reverse Cinderella, so he needs to use his charm to charm her, not his privilege to charm her. So the earrings, or you set up the earrings as the foil the Achilles heel later where she she realises she loves him but she hates money and she hates these earrings and then she's like, I hate the person who sent me these earrings. It was you. <laughs> and, then, and then they fall out but there isn't any of that. No, it makes no sense. No, it doesn't pay off in a way that it, sh it, it should do and, and just contradicts the whole movie. So... Uh, very weird. Should have been excised. They go to a basketball match where Prince Akeem's future sister-in-law gives him a hand job. Um, she doesn't give him a hand job. Of she course just... she does. What do you think? <laughs> Victoria, please she don't was... do this. I sometimes you have to know when you say things like this. It's really problematic for me because I, I often view you as like actually Victoria. But I, I turn to you for guidance, and then when you say something so utterly stupid, I'm like, "What? Well, I'm, I'm wasting my life." She's all I'm in. I'm wasting my she's, life. She's definitely all in. What's, what is happening in that scene, then, V? Uh, Tell me. She was squeezing his leg. <laughs> he runs to the toilet because he's got. Oh really? He, yes. He literally oh. orgasms. He stands up and goes, "Yes!" Like he orgasms in the scene. <laughs> I thought that he's because he's such a gentleman. He was becoming aroused and he didn't want to become aroused because he wanted to save himself for Lisa. So he jumps up to run away from this woman's creeping hand, but mm. she has not yet reached the important part. <laughs> so that's honestly what I thought. I'm, why? I'm not. I just why? did. <laughs> why did you? Why? Why? Mark Addy. It's Mark Addy all over again. It's Jesus. <laughs> I, I, just out of interest, it might have just been a mistake, but 
I, I actually really like the way you pronounced aroused then. You said, <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you always say aroused? Because it's very strange. Very it's strange. just a really, really when interesting way to say it. When do you think I say it? it? When else would I be saying it, Mark, as a for instance? I, Mark, are you aroused? <laughs> <laughs> Am I arousing you? <laughs> I'm here to arouse you. I'm here to arouse you. Yeah, I thought that's how, it's just how we say it in this house. <laughs> Uh, and also in this scene, Daryl pulls. <laughs> she, she, she was squeezing his leg. That's what was happening. It's just squeezing. She was just touching his leg. Fucking Kids, hell. get out! Just squeezing his leg. <laughs> just, just, just go, go. Never mind. Go on, Never Chris. Yeah. Uh, Daryl pulls a Richard from Crocodile Dundee by being rude about his home, about Prince Keem's home, asking him if he wears clothes, um, asking him if he chases monkeys, and he's even he's even rude about football or what he calls soccer, and that makes mm. him a true villain. Mm. Um, what else happens here? Samuel L. Jackson pops up as an armed robber. That's a good bit because that's a set piece. So, like... Eddie Murphy's like, oh, you know, I need to get this girl, so I've got to do things to impress her. And you're like, hooray, we're into act two, a series of set pieces, ideally three, if I would have my way. <laughs> but the first set piece is just a joke with her dad where he's like, the, the just to button the scene where he's like, stay off the drugs if you want to work here. So that's boring. But Sam Jackson being a, a stick-up guy, whatever his character's got, hold-up guy, is good because that's a proper set piece. I just think it needs a few more. Do you think Quentin Tarantino saw this scene and went, I know who I'll be calling when Pulp Fiction comes around? Because <laughs> he's so, like, honestly, you just, it's, it's it, I couldn't, I mean, it's Sam Jackson, but, I, you know, I couldn't help but see the, uh, the, um, the Pulp Fiction scene where he kills the guys. I was like, it's so, he's so good. He's so good in this. I totally forgot he was in it as well, which is why I'm talking about it. I was like, fucking hell, it's Sam Jackson, Jesus. Uh, Daryl kind of screws Lisa over by um, telling his dad that he's going to marry her and makes an announcement without asking her that they're engaged. Um, Lisa won't be pressured into marriage, much like Akeem, and the two of them start to bond, um, which leads into a date where we get one of the great movie in-jokes because um, Akeem gives money to Randolph and Mortimer from Trading Places. Is it a great movie in joke or is it just a very fucking weird, weird moment that like takes you completely out of the scene? Like, cause you're like, oh, Trading Places. That was funnier, wasn't it? <laughs> I mean, agreed. Trading Places is both funnier and better. But no, I like, <laughs> yeah. I like the shared Duke Brothers universe. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. And also you sort of like Prince, it, it doesn't work because what Prince Akeem has done is a really nice gesture, and you're like, that is lovely. He has given a shit ton of money to a homeless person, and then you find out that homeless person is a villain from another movie, and you're like, well, that, that's not, that's not, that that, that should have gone to a, an, a genuine better homeless person. Yeah, but it's Randolph and Mortimer. Right, fine, I'm not arguing <laughs> with you if that's your answer. <laughs> um, Semi's upset because he wants money. He sends a telegraph home. Uh, asking for more money. Uh, the woman there rips the piss out of him, jokingly suggests she should go for a cool million. I only bring this up because I wonder, is this the reason that email scam involving an African prince needing access to his money exists? <laughs> <laughs> Did some people yes. see that scene and thought, I know what we can do. People have seen it in the movies and it must work because it's happened so often. It must work. 
It's weird because Arsenio Hall is really good in this scene. Like, and I wish he had more scenes like this where, where he he had stuff to do other than react to Eddie Murphy. Like yeah. when he's on his own, he's very funny. I think he's like he's like when he's like, "What you you think it should be more?" It's like really good, like really properly. Like he's great in it, and it's a nice idea that Semi um, gets together with Patrice, Lisa's sister, by telling her that he's the prince and Akeem's his servant. Like that is a funny setup, which doesn't really go anywhere but as you say that's if you want more Arsenio Hall that's the direction they could have gone in but they just kind of drop that because the Zamunda royal family arrives and then we're into sort of full-on fast territory at the McDowell do you know, house um, do you know very quickly well just before we get too far away from it do you know the other actor from Trading Places that uh, Eddie Murphy wanted in this movie they wanted uh, Paul Gleason. Uh, you know the guy who mm, plays the, yeah, the, yeah. the hitman they wanted him in it but he couldn't because uh, he was um in Die Hard, he was doing Die Hard at the time. Yeah, uh, he so was. He, he was basically, it. if you wanted an asshole in your movie, you called Paul Gleason, <laughs> didn't you? That was his. That was his <laughs> thing. So good at it. But yeah, we, it's all about sort of confusion and misunderstanding now because Daryl shows up, as you said, unwelcome. Akeem leaves. Dad tells Lisa the truth. Um, Akeem finds out that Semi's been lying. The royals show up. The king offers to pay Dad two million dollars. For his, for his it, daughter. That's James Earl Jones being brilliant, though, because he has been a bit of a, a bit sex pesty, which I don't want to hear from that man's voice. But mm. then when Lisa's dad is like, there's not, you don't have enough money to buy my daughter. And the way that James Earl Jones says nonsense is really funny. Because <laughs> it's like the idea that there isn't enough money in the world to get this one girl to him is ludicrous. Of course he's got enough money. Mm. And that there really is as well like i mean it, john amos's entire character has been about money yeah. uh, <laughs> and, the, and the idea that there is no figure uh is 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 just stupid you i i mean i what what i i'd have taken one uh i should have held out for two if that was my daughter and i was in that situation <laughs> uh but i one one would have been absolutely one is good. It is but, a weird so I, turnaround. Lost money. It is a weird turnaround from this guy who has been all about money, and then suddenly, when he's offered two million dollars, he's going to break his foot off in the guy's ass by not taking it. It's, it's... <laughs> but, that's, but it's it's meant to be though. That's the whole point of it. It's meant to be a massive like, oh, so he is actually a decent guy when it comes to his daughter, and not like yeah. you know a, a, a moneyed man. Yep. Uh, uh, Daryl gets lucky. He's standing outside in the rain, and Patrice invites him in, gets him out of his wet clothes, and we hear <laughs> we hear the zip, and he looks directly into the camera, breaking the fourth wall. Some lovely work from Eric LaSalle there. Mm. Uh, Eddie Murphy gets out of the start though when he's talking to his queen to be. He breaks the fourth wall. Yeah. That's a Landis thing, isn't it? John Landis has that in loads of his movies. Uh, Spies like us, as uh, someone breaks the fourth wall, trading places as well. Uh-huh. Interesting. And then um, yeah, go on. Sorry, Alex. No, no, I was just going to say, yeah, it's like it's his trademark, Atlantis trademark, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, as well as, um, yeah, as well as uh, falling out massively with his stars. <laughs> <laughs> and then we're into the final stretch. We have uh, the subway sequence from Crocodile Dundee, um, which came out just two, <laughs> just two years before. So this is a strange choice. There's a um, lot of eye acting I noticed going on in this scene, so I'd like to introduce <laughs> eye acting as a subset of face acting. There is. Um, he's he's t- he's sort of um, announcing his love and renouncing his throne while these New Yorkers are listening in, um, sitting on the subway train rather than on the platform. That's the that's the only difference. <laughs> um, but she's funny, isn't she? The woman, the woman sitting there saying, "Go on, honey, take a chance." Again, they've cast people who feel like they're real life New Yorkers. Yeah. 
Yeah, they're not as good as the two guys in Crocodile Dundee, though. Not by a long shot. Well, she says no and leaves. And then a really, really sweet old lady says, if you're really a prince, I'll marry you. I really liked her. And she gets half a million dollar earrings. <laughs> yeah. As, uh, just like, wow. That she was, deserves it. Hey, you know, and there's something to be said for being forward where <laughs> anything can happen. Anything. Like she's got half a million dollars. It's not there because you think, oh, that's nice. She gets some nice earrings. I hope she knew how much they were worth because... You know, she could have made a bit of money selling on selling those. Hey, uh, you glossed over my favourite James Earl Jones moment, which is where he's in uh, McDowell's and he goes, no, do not alert him to my presence. I shall deal with him myself. And you're like, Darth Vader. That is a change. <laughs> but it is as well. It is, if it, it's got to be. I mean, it is. like Because that's a Darth Vader line where he goes, no, leave them to me. I shall deal with them myself. It's a proper, it's a, it's a little nod to Star Wars. They should have had him wheezing while he's saying it to really, <laughs> so I didn't spot it. I didn't catch that. Yeah. Yeah. Or in like, in Rogue One, they should have had Darth Vader going, <gasps> I always assumed you had sex with your bathers. <laughs> I know I do. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so Lisa's turned him down. She's off. And we get a scene in at the back of a limo where the king and queen are talking. And the queen says she thinks tradition is stupid that he can't marry her. And he says it's tradition. She says, I thought you were the king. And I like this and I like her. But it makes me question how he ended up with an outspoken wife if yeah. that doesn't happen in Zamunda. Yeah, because they're a bit like they're sort of the model couple for how it, the system can work. Because you know they have that re- really nice chat with their son at the start. They're like you know, I didn't, I was nervous about marrying your dad, but I've come to love him, and and th- it works. So it's kind of like there's nothing wrong with the way they've been doing it. But if you look at his parents as an example, yeah, but they clearly don't love each other. I mean, when you say it works, they are managing to rule a country together and not kill each other. <laughs> Her husband is having sex with his bathers yeah. probably every morning. So there's no love there or if if there is she's buried like any kind of emotion deeply <laughs> to allow him to do that because there's no way she doesn't know so what is really working maybe, there maybe I that mean, is the secret I'm, of a long and happy long marriage, marriage. it's shagging yeah. the bather <laughs> maybe she's got some bathers as well you don't know it doesn't go both ways you know maybe she has a, a lovely morning surprise the same as he does and mm-hmm. that's what keeps this marriage ticking along yeah Where's this innocence come from today, Victoria? <laughs> a lovely, a lovely morning surprise. She was squeezing his leg. What's this about? I told you, who, the who sun are is you? shining. The sun is shining. I'm a different person. It's another beautiful day in Zamunda, and the royal tits are clean. <laughs> okay, little, little morning surprise. I can't. No, I'll punch it off. Don't bring that surprise anywhere near me. <laughs> and so uh, we're back in Zamunda. Oh, punch it off. <laughs> I'll punch it up. If you yeah. bring that anywhere yeah. near me, I will yeah. punch yeah. it up. I it's can't it's not wait a... to say that later. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he hasn't heard yeah. because it'll ruin the surprise a bit, but amazing. Uh, yeah, he won't be a roused anymore, will he? <laughs> oh, no. oh, I mean, you don't know him that well, to be honest, Chris, so he might be. Uh, so we're back in Zamunda and Akeem thinks he's marrying uh, the arranged uh, bride, but actually uh, Lisa shows up and that's it. 
Lisa gives up her life, her moral centre, her work, <laughs> her home for money, even though love. she said she wouldn't do love. that. No, <laughs> nonsense. <For> nonsense. <laughs> yeah, like father, like daughter. Uh, <laughs> she, she'd, if, it, if it was reversed, she'd have sold her own kid out for a million dollars, apparently, according to the movie's logic. So it's a nice, happy ending. Um, and that's about it. Do you know what this film went up against at the box office? I'm going to tell you. Ooh, Crocodile okay. Dundee 2 was one yeah. of the films it was up against. <laughs> uh, and they both made a fucking fortune. So uh, no problems <laughs> there. Did this film, like roughly how much did this make? Like in the hundreds of millions? Over 300 million. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. Oh, it, it's, 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 I think it might be Eddie Murphy's second biggest hit. It's huge. Absolutely huge. And it nearly um, sparked a sitcom as well, because not only was I reading court transcripts this week, I also watched <laughs> the 1989 pilot for Coming to America, the TV show. Wow. Uh, this is about Prince Tariq, who gets sent to a college in America because he's spoiled and unreliable and lacking in direction. Paul Bates returns as Oha, his assistant um, on this trip. And there's a guy called Tommy Davison who basically plays the Eddie Murphy role, a comedian who can obviously do a Stevie Wonder impression because someone says, fine, if you want, he says, fine, if you want me to be someone else, I'll be Stevie Wonder and does an impression of Stevie Wonder. Then he does an impression of Run DMC. Then he does an impression of Michael Jackson. This is all in the first five minutes of the show. So he's basically <laughs> an impressionist that they've given a sitcom to. I think that's what's happened here. <laughs> um, and it has such brilliant lines as him saying I'm a Beverly Hills cop you're a Beverly Hills cop too and in 48 hours we're trading places Whoa. Jesus Christ <laughs> um, it's it's really bad but the one thing I did notice is that it's very similar in setup and tone to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air which aired a year later so if they got this right they could have had a huge hit on their hands because the similarities are there but it's just so many of the jokes fall flat on their face and that's about it about this. We've got the sequel out this week. Um, Craig hey, what, Brewer directs this time. Yeah, what might what might interest you, Victoria? I know you're a big fan of Dolomite Is My Name. It's directed mm-hmm. by the same guy who did that. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. Re- really? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because that's your favorite. That's your favorite Eddie Murphy movie, isn't it? Oh, do you not think it is? Are you, are you calling me out? <laughs> <laughs> and there you are. And she's back, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Whatever happened in the middle of that episode is gone. No, I'm not calling you out. I'm just re- re- referencing something that you said on the end of your show. Yeah, it is my favourite Eddie Murphy film. Yes, correct. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> well, how has this gone so wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> oh, are you making up for lost time? Jesus. <laughs> sorry. Um, I'm not sorry, actually. I don't like saying that. Frank, are, you, are you calling me out? Mate, are you calling me out? <laughs> are you calling me out on the podcast? Is that what you're doing? Alex, Fuck come on. You. I'll punch it off. <laughs> So Eddie Murphy, Arsenio Hall, James Earl Jones, Sherry Hadley and John Amos all return. And we've got newcomers as well. Wesley Snipes, who looks very funny in it. Uh, Tracy Morgan and Leslie Jones are all in the sequel. Uh, Wesley Snipes does look absolutely hilarious in this. And from literally about three seconds that he's in the trailer, the way he walks down the aisle at the procession is brilliant um, and in terms of that writing controversy uh eddie murphy's been asked about that again this week um and he said uh in terms of the new movie he said i'm not even sure how all that stuff was resolved what the exact wording was but at the end of the day i think it's all good in the credits they give a thank you to art book world estate so that's 
and then is I there any, and then some money? I is think some money. I think the art. And, and then some money. I think art book would rather have millions of dollars his estate. So <laughs> yeah. that's how yeah. that was resolved. Right, let's do the bits. Um, Victoria, favorite scene. Uh, very quickly, is the dance. Um, I thought it was incredible. The wedding dance. You know what I mean? Yes. Thanks to Paula Abdul. Uh, Alex. <laughs> Uh, so yeah I'm d- totally down with Victoria the dance number at the start uh, it's both impressive and very funny for how long it goes on for it's either it's either a dance number or any joke revolving around the rose petlers which uh, those are those are funny jokes excellent I'm going for um, when Eric LaSalle breaks, breaks the fourth wall when he's having a blowy because that really made me laugh um, MVW Alex most valuable whatever <laughs> having, I, I'm so tempted having, are, are, you, are, you, are you sure that's what was happening <laughs> Anyway, if you say so. Uh, Alex, MBW, most valuable, whatever. I'm sort of a bit with Victoria. Like, wait, is he? I don't remember. I don't know. Does she bend down in that no, scene? She, just unzip, that she, what... unzips his, she unzips his fly and he looks in the, he looks in the camera. Because he's got wet trousers. That's all. She's helping him get... <laughs> all right. <It's... laughs> like, can we find somewhere in the middle of what fucking Chris is saying, which is not exactly what's happening. We don't know that she's going to be giving him, in, in, com- in inverted commas, a blowy. Yeah, well, nothing, she, nothing she's done. No, nothing she's no. done before in this movie suggests that she might do something like that at all. <laughs> well, she's, some, she's given a hand job. How do you know she's not just given a hand job? That's That's... Possibly what she is gave actually a hand, going she gave on in that handy scene. earlier. She's going to give a blowy here. Job done. Handy? Do you say that? Do people say that? Maybe that's why I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Handy. Okay. I'm learning a lot. <laughs> it's good. Victoria, don't. You don't ha- Don't learn from this. Genuinely, <laughs> his trousers were wet and she wanted to get them off him before he caught a chill. And that's, that's, the, that's the joke. That is the yeah. joke in that scene. What Chris is saying is disgusting and wrong. <laughs> Should we do the podcast? Um, Alex, what is your MVW, most valuable, whatever? Uh, uh, Frankie Faison. I think he's brilliant as the <laughs> landlord. I just think he's, I don't know, I think he's so funny. I love him. Good choice. Unexpected. Uh, Vicky, how about you? Uh, Eddie Murphy. But because of the barbershop stuff, more than Prince Hakeem's stuff. Although he's brilliant as Prince Hakeem, but I just want him to be funny as well. And I get that with the barbershop stuff, so... Cool. I want to give a shout out to Rick Baker because I think that makeup yeah. really is incredible. You know, 30 years on, it still looks absolutely brilliant. It's amazing. Amazing. Mm. Um, to test out to test out that makeup, he drove across the, the studio lot in a golf buggy after having it put on and went up to people he didn't know uh, in his own voice saying, I'm Eddie Murphy. I'm Eddie Murphy wearing that makeup and no one would believe him. And that was how he knew it was really fucking good makeup. So I go Rick Rick Baker, but I also want a special mention for uh, Nile Rogers, who said in April 2016 of the Soul Glow uh, music, in my long career of composing, this just might be my single proudest moment. <laughs> uh, and if you could change anything, uh, would you change anything? And what would that be, Vicky? Um, so I think the film is saying that Lisa doesn't like rich guys because they think they can like boss her around and tell her what to do. Although she does love her dad, so I'm not sure. But uh, Prince Hakim should make a mistake and do a rich guy thing and it's there with the earrings but then that's not picked up so that that shows Lisa that she's right like she's fallen in love with him and but then he does something wrong and then she is like no I can't be with you uh, because you're rich which comes too late it happens on the subway so whatever it would be he just does something that she would hate and it does happen in the film but it isn't acknowledged that that's something that she would hate 
So because the trouble for me with Lisa is that she's entirely gettable. And I know it's not a rom-com, same as Crocodile Dundee, but you do have very rom-com elements. So she should be the most ungettable person. And he has got to go on a huge journey in order to get her. She's like super gettable. All he needs to do is get rid of Daryl. But Daryl's a dick anyway. So that's like pretty straightforward. But he doesn't get rid of Daryl by being a charming pauper. He gets rid of him through money. It's it's all really confusing. So just make that a bit cleaner um, and a bit more rom-com-y. Good. Uh, Alex? Um, I... I think, first of all, I said at the start, I think the original Queen, uh, who he turns down, needs to have found love at the end uh, with a prince from another country or something, or Arsenio Hall's character. I just feel sorry for someone who has dedicated their entire life to being the servant of the prince, and then when they're denied that, what do you do with the rest of your life? Like, you... you, you it's, it's it's heartbreaking, really, that she's like she has no purpose as far as this film is concerned. Uh, but other than that, I I, I just John Landis said uh, I think this is about 2014. He he asked Paramount if uh, they'd mind if he went he uh, took the film and did uh, the edit he wanted to do a director's cut edit and make it a lot zippier. Like he was like he feels like the film is too long and too slow in parts and. I kind of agree with him. I find like the re- I, I, I've watched it weirdly. I watched it twice in preparation for this pod because I wanted to make sure I was right. There are scenes that are played way too long in that film. Maybe like if they'd screened it a few more times instead of pulling it after the second screening and going, we're not showing it to anyone else. They do actually learn that, but it just feels labored. Like gags are labored so much. So I, I, I think, um, I think give John Landis uh, the opportunity to uh, recut it so we could see what a slightly snappier version would be. Cause I, I do think it would be a much better film if it was just pacier. There's a lot, a lot of stuff in there that doesn't need to be there. And then if they were in the edit bay together, John Landis and Eddie Murphy, you could maybe film that and see what happens. <laughs> mm. uh, for me, I think to go out with a bang, I think the film needed to get all the funny characters together at the end. So find a way for the barbers and Randy Watson and Reverend Brown to attend the wedding as Lisa's guest or something and cause a bit of chaos in Zamunda. Uh, you know, maybe have Randy Watson singing at the reception or something. Um, oh, do you know what that reminded me of? You know, at the end, isn't it um, inner space? Inner space, <laughs> <laughs> where the wedding guests are like, "Why? Why would you be at this wedding?" Though, <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. We'd, try, we'd actually explain it, though. I think coming to America, rather than just have it be a thing in inner space that never gets explained. <laughs> why? Why is Martin Short's ex boss at <laughs> Dennis Quaid's wedding at the end of the fucking movie? Oh, I love that. Um, but also, I think they should reinstate a sequence that was excised uh, from the script early on, um, doubtless due to scheduling or maybe money. Um, but there was apparently a scene uh, that would have featured Michael Jackson, Prince and Eddie Murphy having a dance-off on a New York street. Wow. <laughs> that I would have liked yeah. to see. That would have been great. That would have been great. Right. Um, we're done then. That is coming to America. It is time for this week's Verdict. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! So, Crocodile Dundee went up against Coming to America. Victoria, these were your choices. Who yeah. do you want to go first? Um, you can go first. I'm not, because I'm... Uh, I Yeah, personally, I found it very difficult to pick, actually. So I'll be interested to see which way you go. So you, you go first. 
I, I'm with you. I had a real hell of a time deciding this week. So, and um, Crocodile Dundee, like, it's amazing that it works because it is barely a movie. Like, it's it, it sort of, it, it, its second half seems to actively try and remove any of the tentpole features that a classic film would have. And yet it still works. It still works and it's charming. I thought this week was going to be a slam dunk for coming to America. I really did walk it into this. I was like, even though I don't remember loving it as a kid, I'm sure like, you know, I was just too young. I'm watching it this time. I'm going to get why it was such a mega hit. Uh, and I, I still didn't. I, I still find it labored. I find the gags scattershot. I find it slow in parts. So there's problems with both of them. Um, but in the end, <laughs> I, think, oh, I hope this isn't the second week in a row that I've done it. Uh, but I, I, I do fundamentally believe this idea about a, a comedy feature film should be an hour and a half, uh, as close to that <laughs> as possible. Like 90 minutes is what has been suggested the best length for a comedy is because after the 90 minute mark, you just get comedy fatigue. Like people can't laugh for that long. Uh, so it should be an hour and a half. And coming to America is um, a whole 15 minutes longer than Crocodile Dundee. Uh, so I'm going Crocodile Dundee. Yes, okay. Chris? Oh, I'm agreeing with you two. I really didn't know which way to vote this week. It's harder than I ever could have imagined. Um, I, uh, like you said, Alex, I, I just like Crocodile Dundee in the way it's light and breezy and it just kind of washes over you driven by Hogan's natural charisma, but it doesn't feel like a real movie. But Coming to America doesn't feel like a real movie. It feels like a series of sketches, some of them half-formed and half-finished, to be honest. Most of them are funny, though, to be fair. I think I think the romance stuff rings a bit more true in Crocodile Dundee, but I think the comedy works better, much better in Coming to America. Co- Hogan really had me welling up, as we said on Monday's episode. There's some magic in that ending to Crocodile Dundee, but Murphy had me laughing a bit more in coming to America and as I like laughing more than crying I'm going for coming to America <gasps> really Ooh. Ooh. jeopardy I love a bit of jeopardy in the verdict uh, <laughs> go on then Victoria uh, so, you chose the movies sort of I did uh, so sort it's over of. to you <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think Amazon Prime chose them for me this week um so the thing I focus on is how much the lead character changes or doesn't change. So bear with me. So Crocodile Dundee not changing at all, I, I get, because he represents the old world, the countryside, which is is unchanging, a perennial. But Prince Akeem not changing, I don't get, because he's very humble about his station and his situation all the way through the film. And it's a really fun film, and it, and it probably is a bit more fun than Crocodile Dundee. And when I first started watching these in the week, I was certain I was going to vote for Crocodile Dundee because of how the, the historical love that I have for it. Um, but... Uh, coming to America would be next level better if we saw him change uh, Prince Hakeem and it would skirt the really terrible politics of him humiliating the princess, the bride-to-be and the quote-unquote like unsuitable women of New York. It's his attitude that is the problem and he changes to become humble, therefore winning the woman of his dreams. So Crocodile Dundee, although it's not perfect, and like you said, the second act is just a bit, uh, and there's no act three apart from walking to a subway or whatever, um, 
it makes sense on its own terms. And even though it's not the best it can be within the premise, it's the best it can, it's better than coming to America within the premise, if that makes sense. So Crocodile Dundee is my vote. Oh my gosh, Crocodile Dundee is the winner. Wow. I, I thought you were going with uh, Coming to America as you started that, Victoria. I really did. But Coming to America finishes second, also last place. Go on, I will say I'm not unhappy. I'm really glad Crocodile Dundee's won. Oh, okay. well, that's yeah. good. I'd have been, I honestly... I, I know we don't mention the poll sometimes because I use the poll as leverage in arguments which don't need to happen on air. So you try. Uh, I mean, I leverage is a strong word because it suggests a result. Um, well, we... the poll actually, the, the poll stands as a completely separate entity, but it has its own result system. So you need to actually check that uh, before you carry on, though. Carry on. So no, you've clearly got something you want to please. say. No, it's sorry, fine. Sorry, it's a fine. man is talking. A man is talking. Mm. Please carry on. <laughs> oh, ugly, ugly and unnecessary. And also, especially seeing as I have just watched Crocodile Dundee. So excuse me if I've been influenced by cinema of the 80s. Okay. Sorry. I'm not sorry. Stop, stop fucking saying sorry. I'm not sorry. But yeah, that was. Uh, and, and for the record, I did, I did, not, I did not ask you to apologise. I just want that to be clear. Can we right. just end the podcast, anyway. please? Sorry. No. sorry. I'm no. sorry about that. Yeah. Everyone, everyone's sorry, and yet no one's sorry. Listen, what I'm saying is listen to the man. What I'm saying is. Uh, it'll be. I'm interested. All I wanted to say was I'll be interested to see what the fucking poll looks like when it comes out. I'll be interested <laughs> to see how close it is because I think it's very close this week. Coming right, to America will win by a landslide. Move on. Do you think so? <laughs> oh, oh, we're on the wrong side. Uh, now, um, Victoria, uh, yes. you have a, a very special announcement for us uh, for something outside Clash of the Titles this week. Yes, I just wanted to mention another podcast that Chris and I have been involved in the making of. The podcast is called Tell Me About It. Uh, this is through the organisation that I work for, which is an HIV information charity called NAM AIDS Map. So I've worked there for like three years. But since I've been there, I've learned so much about HIV and what it means today. Because honestly, going into that that job, all I really knew were, do you remember the Tombstone adverts from the 80s, which were absolutely terrifying and John Hurt's like scary voiceover. And I didn't really know much more than that, which I think may be true for quite a lot of people because that, that information campaign was so, it was successful in one way because everybody remembers it. But there hasn't been maybe as visible a presence of more positive messages about the, the truly amazing developments in HIV prevention and treatment in the intervening years. So at NAM AIDS Map, we started a podcast series called Tell Me About It. Now, each episode is a conversation between people sharing their experiences of living with HIV or opening up about what they assumed that meant and, and also like what they'd like to know more about. So we've got some really good guests um, and we talk about HIV and its impact on sex, on life expectancy, starting a family, how to stay well, mental health, public attitudes. And we're just trying to shatter some myths and um, empower people to share their stories about what it really means to live with HIV today, but most importantly, how that's changed significantly over the years. So that's Tell Me About It, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Lovely stuff. Thank you very much, Victoria. Um, I am going to follow up that announcement uh, with this is spectacular <laughs> disaster movie action. Okay, now. That was the clue on Monday for what the films next week are going to be. Chris, next week, the films are 
Gerard Butler saving the planet in Geostorm for you, Chris, and Gerard Butler saving himself <laughs> in Greenland for you, Victoria. Lovely. Alex finally oh. gets to do Geostorm. <laughs> been it's a been long on the list time. for such a long time. In a long okay, time now. in the making. That, thank you, uh, filmmakers of Greenland. Uh, you, it just fell in my lap. And thank you. I've been looking for this, and and it is here. Uh, so, Geostorm is available to rent on Amazon Prime. Uh, Greenland is free if you have Amazon Prime, uh, but it's the only place that you can see it at the moment because it's an Amazon original. Uh, right, that is us done for this week. If you haven't already, uh, please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ClashPod. We are back on Monday talking Geostorm. Breathe that in. Bye till then. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.